You're listening to Symmetry Health 360. This episode is brought to you by Symmetry Coding and Oasis E-Solutions, the leading experts in QAP coding and CMS rulings in home health and hospice. Today's episode is hosted by Janan Griffin, Principal, Senior Vice President, Coding, Charles Bresnicki, Senior Clinical Consulting Manager, and John Rabia, Director, Operations Consulting. Join these experts for today's episode, From Good Publicity to Good Money, Successful Patient Outcomes Matter. I'm Janine Griffin. Last week we talked about OACC and this week we're going to talk a little bit about outcomes. So we're leading up to our next episode, which will be VBP. So John and Charlie, I would like for you to introduce yourselves, please. Great. Thanks, Janan. Uh, my name is John Rabia. I am a director on our operations consulting team here at Symmetry. I am a physical therapist by training and have worked in the post-acute space for over 20 years from taking care of patients out in the field to being a manager to being an executive over operations and quality, both in standalone entities and in hospital-based systems. And I'll hand over to Charlie for his intro. Great. Thanks, John. My name's Charlie Brez. Nikki, I'm the director on the clinical operations team at Symmetry. I'm a registered nurse with over 15 years of experience in home health space as a field nurse, a manager, and also in quality and compliance. So to talk with everyone today. All right, guys. So you see we have the experts here on quality. So let's dive right into outcomes. Everybody is talking about outcomes. They talked about star ratings before, but now they're really talking about outcomes. What are you guys seeing? What are you guys hearing out in the in the world of agencies? Well, I think everyone's been, they're starting to realize that with uh, VBP, it's our first performance year of VBP. They're realizing that outcomes are more than just good publicity. They actually mean money. And we'll be talking more in depth about VBP in an upcoming episode. But folks are starting to realize that their outcomes are, are really, really critical and, and understanding that, especially under VBP, not just whether or not a patient improved, but how much they improve by, how many points on that particular Oasis item makes a big difference. So we've seen a huge, a huge focus on outcomes. What have you seen, Charlie? Kind of that same thing. Along with the Oasis is hospitalizations. And I know that this has been an area, especially for the health system-based agencies, because they're tied to that. So their system wanted to, to work with them on that. And then those that were the standalones, they wanted to be able to use that their hospitalization rates were good to get referrals, but then also the HCAP scores, so the satisfaction scores. This is one that I think that we all know it takes a while to move these, and we really need to look at, you know, people are trying to, to figure out how do they get those scores improved? What can we do to really demonstrate the quality of the care that we give. And that's an area that I think a lot of folks are really struggling with is, you know, how do we measure this? Because it can be a bit of a nebulous topic with the satisfaction scores. So is it when we're talking about the VBP measures, and again, we'll get into VBP a little bit more, but outcomes in general, there are all different kinds of outcomes. So tell me, like, I know there's process measures and then outcomes measures. Are the process measures going to be part of VBP or tell me about that? No. So there's really three main groups for VBP. There's your OASIS-based measures, which are going to be your N1800s, which are included in your total normalized composite scores, which, like John had said, measure how much patients improved, not just if they had or had not. Also in the OASIS is going to be management of oral meds, dyspnea, as well as a discharge to community. And then there's the claims-based measures, which are uh, acute care hospitalization within 60 days and ED use without hospitalization. And then your survey-based measures, which will come right from your HCAPs. 
So like our timely initiation of care, is that still important? It is. It's not a measure in VVP. However, it is important because you want to be sure that you're getting in there and identifying any of those areas that the patient needs to improve and any of the risk factors that they may have that could lead to them having a poor outcome or going back to the hospital or being harmed. So it is very important to meet the requirement from the CMS of the 48 hours from the referral, but it is not directly tied to BBP and payment adjustments. And it is still part of your star rating. So we want to make sure that that we're doing, apart from the fact that it's just good care to be timely in terms of getting, getting your patient engaged in services, it has implications for outcomes beyond just value-based purchasing. But as Charlie mentioned, obviously, the sooner you can get a patient onto service and assess the risks and start putting interventions in place, the better off you're going to do on all of the measures that are part of of value-based purchasing. Well, the reason I brought timely initiation of care up is because in the last episode, we talked about staffing and we see a lot of agencies trying to maybe manipulate their 48 hours. Tell me a little bit about operationally what agencies need to be doing if they don't have the staff to take someone within 48 hours. Some agencies are in a really... So here's here's the rosy colored glasses answer is folks just need to be really honest with themselves about what their capacity is, whether or not we're able to do this patient justice by taking them on under care in a timely manner or not. And if we can't, then we've got to decline the referral. Sometimes it's easier said than done because... I think every agency I've run into is struggling with this. So I think some of what we've actually seen is an agency will try to do this and say, I'm sorry, I don't have capacity. I can't accept this referral, but no other agency will either. And then, you know, a day later, two days later, the referral source submits the referral again. So the patient's waiting anyway. You know, this is a tricky situation for agencies to be in. The best thing you can do is to have a tight capacity management process in place to really understand in real time how many starts of care, how many resumptions you can handle on a given day and to communicate honestly with your referral sources. Yeah, that open a dialogue with the referral source is really key so that they know when they can rely on you and when you're saying to them, hey, you know what, we are at our max. They they know that you really are because you're having that open and you're you're being transparent along with them. So having that, the other piece is for when the clock actually begins. So knowing when do you have a full referral for the forty eight hours that actually begins. If you're struggling to find a physician who's going to sign off on the patient, you you need to have that. You need to know who's going to take responsibility for the patient's care once they're on service. So that is a really key piece, and that can come from the referral source. Working along with them to know, you know, who's going to sign off on the plan of care, who's going to oversee the plan of care moving forward. I know that I've had agencies tell me, well, the hospitalist said that they would sign the plan of care. And I'm bringing all this up because it really does have something to do with the patient's outcomes, right? All of yeah. the timely initiation of care and all of this has to do with the patient outcomes. And so what have you seen agencies try to use this method of using the hospitalist or the skilled nursing facility physician to sign the plan of care and that at some point in time they may have a physician that they see otherwise? Yeah, so I have both as an administrator of the agencies that I've run and certainly on the consulting side. And and again, it's a rock in the hard place type situation, particularly if you're part of an integrated system and you're taking patients from the hospital who might not have been engaged with primary care, community-based care for a long time, and you run into these complications. And of course, 
primary care physicians have the same capacity issues that we do. So, you know, how soon can you get this patient in? Six weeks? Great. Okay, that's not going to help me out. So the problem when you talk about the hospitalist, it sounds great on paper. And just being stone cold reality, sometimes it's the best option that you have. So sometimes it's it's what you're going to have to do. The issue that you typically run into is that the hospitalists are often residents. They rotate on and off. So they say that they're going to cover the patient's plan of care this week, but they're not on next week when you call them or you can't get a hold of them or they're not comfortable managing this medication that you found in the home that a different provider prescribed or the, the upshot is more often than not, what we see is that if the patient truly gets into trouble, rather than having somebody you can really collaborate with, the answer is send them back to the ED, which is, of course, what we're all trying to avoid. So to the extent that it's possible, really getting that patient engaged with primary care during the referral process is the ideal. Some of the the solutions that we've seen work really well are the visiting physician or visiting nurse practitioner services. They very often are they're comfortable dealing with these short timelines and managing their capacity, and they can get out to see that patient, you know, very shortly after the patient returns home. So we've seen that work really, really well. But the hospitals thing, again, sometimes it's the only option that you have, but it certainly comes with significant challenges. Agreed. Agreed on all of the fronts. That being said. Do you feel like agencies now, because of capacity, because of their hyper-focused on outcomes, do you feel like agencies may or may not be turning down referrals that may be frequent flyers or knowing that they may not have good outcomes, they're not compliant? Do you see that, that agencies may be doing that some? Kind of. I think a lot of them are struggling with the staffing. So I think there's always been kind of that weight of do we want to take the patient on again because they're this is the fourth time in a year that we've had them on and they don't improve. I have not heard anyone saying they're they're not taking them on, but what they need to look at is when you do take them on, what are you going to do a different in this time so that they don't come back on? And that's where agencies I think really struggle is we have this one, we see them for 5 weeks, they go back to the hospital because they don't take their meds. Well, what do we need to put in place so that they can do their meds or can afford their meds? So it's really where can the cycle be broken so that we can improve in outcomes? And that's where I think a lot of the times that we need to work with agencies and help them to, to look at the patient's care in a bit of a different way. And I think the big opportunity there very often with these frequent flyer patients, it boils down to social determinants issues or undiagnosed or unmanaged behavioral or mental health issues. And that's where, you know, if we keep doing the same thing, we're going to get the same results. If we're just reconciling the patient's meds and taking care of their medical needs without looking at what their social needs are or what their mental health or behavioral health needs are, of course, they're going to go back into the hospital. So I think it's really, really critical. It should be one of the triggers when we see, you know, this patient's a frequent flyer, then they're ED all the time. What are they really asking for? What are they really saying? And now, as we talked about in our last episode, the Oasis E does have items that talks about tracks and measures, social determinants of health, which provides us a great opportunity to say, well, what are we going to do about that? We can put some interventions in place. How do we involve community resources and social work and really integrate that into our care plan to hopefully mitigate some of these issues that have been going unnoticed or untreated for so long with some of these folks. Yeah, unfortunately in home care, I think we get very tunnel visioned as clinicians and this is our skill and this is what we're going to do and we forget about all of the things that surround that. How our CHF patient with no caregiver and weighs 400 pounds is a different CHF patient than 
that weighs 98 pounds that has five caregivers. Those are different patients. You know, one with great community resources, one with no community resources, one on limited funds versus one with unlimited funds. So I think that we've lost that somewhere along the way because social worker wasn't a reimbursable kind of person that those that that kind of went to the wayside. And so I see social workers at least have the opportunity for more visits, more interaction with our patients, only because, again, like you said, John, the OACC kind of prompts us for some of that information, lack of transportation, you know, social isolation, those type of things that maybe wasn't triggered on the previous OASIS assessment. So we got a little bit away from outcomes, but all of those things do matter with outcomes. Let me ask you guys this. Tell me, is it just the Medicare patients, Oasis, Star Care to Discharge, that we have to worry about? Is it just the Medicare patients or are there outcomes on other patients too that we have to worry about? It's important to track on everybody. I've always found it helpful to be aware of uh, outcomes on everyone. As far as it goes with DDP, the OASIS-based measures include your Medicare, your Medicaid's traditional, as well as the Medicare advantages. Additionally, from a clinician standpoint and just a delivery of care standpoint is you want them to be focused on improved outcomes on everybody. So you don't want them to get into the idea of this is Medicare, we do this. This is Medicaid, we do this. The goal should be to improve outcomes on everyone. So you really want to strive for that with the whole patient population that an agency serves. So talking about outcomes, I know that we've had some exclusions with OACC. Tell us a little bit about those exclusions and are they helpful to agencies or are they not? M2420. Oh, yes. Gotcha. So the, <laughs> the discharge to, to our community. Yeah. So CMS recently um, clarified in an FAQ that for VBP, the patients that would be excluded from that measure are those that go to hospice. At first, it seemed good. But then what we saw was the risk adjustment that those were the sicker patients. So it kind of changed the risk adjustment scores and kind of brought it down. So that may be an impact of a change in the risk adjustment model, but we may see that change as the year it goes on. But you still need to consider there that you're taking your sickest patients out. So you will see a modification adjustment on the risk adjustment scores. And it'll be curious how this measure will continue to be used in VBP, because if you consider the patients that are going to be included, it's those that are discharged to the community will be the numerator, and then the denominator will be those plus those that went to the hospital. So it's going to be close to an inverse of your acute care hospitalization rate. It won't be exact, but it'll be pretty close that your discharge to community will be almost the inverse of what your ACH is. So we'll just see where Medicare goes with keeping this in there. But even though those exclusions are there, it might have the not the expected benefit that many agencies um, thought they'd say. I, I agree with that. I also have seen lately some agencies talking about their outcomes being down this so far this year. Do you think that's a result of OASIS? What do you think that's a result of? So I think if it's a risk-adjusted measure down, I think that it's because um, the risk-adjusted model had changed. And we would see that, that and that's just a normal course of a big change in the risk adjustment model. So that may be contributing to that. And as we move along, those numbers should uh, go up. But also it may be due, a lot of agencies were focused on oasis to train their staff on oasis at the end of 2022, the beginning of 2023, and focusing on the new measures. So some of those other ones that are publicly reported, the education may not have been provided as often on those. So staff may have fallen into old habits of how to score those OASIS items. 
So I think it's between the risk adjustment and the focus on the new items in OACC, may, we may be seeing a decline in the outcomes there. Good answer, I guess. Not helpful for agencies right now when they mm. you know, freak out a little bit when they see their outcomes going down. So any other thoughts on outcomes? Let me, I just thought of this. What about because of staffing and everything else, non-visit discharges? I've seen them on an increase with agencies. Non-visit discharges, how do you think that's going to affect their outcomes? That's not going to be positive because you're just sort of winging it and making your best guess on those OASIS items as opposed to filling them out based on direct assessment. I, I think that it's a matter of staffing. It's also a, just a lack of good planning around that patient. We need to be evaluating. You know, so many times it's that the patient refused further care, was lost to further care. If we're really fulfilling the plan of care to that patient and staying engaged with the patient, we, we should really know when their last visit is going to be. It shouldn't come as a surprise that they don't want to see us anymore, that we can't find them anymore, which is kind of most often what I see, what happens. So I think it's really, really critical that, that we're managing our case managers' caseloads effectively and managing those episodes of care effectively so that we're engaged with that patient right until the end and not having to kind of do a back office discharge like that. All right, guys. Anything else that you want to talk about as far as outcomes? Any parting thoughts? So I think one thing for agencies that when they saw the decline in the risk-adjusted scores, one thing to keep in mind is if their actual scores can continue to increase, risk-adjusted scores should be should begin to catch up. So I know it can be discouraging to see those now, but focusing on the ones that do actually improve, trying to push that to push them forward and to celebrate that success, the risk adjustments will catch up as the year goes on. All right, guys, thanks so much for your time. And next week, we're going to talk about value-based purchasing. 